If, if you didn't know, that's Emily Meeks. Maybe, maybe some of you have been following along this summer. Maybe some of you just woke up today after three months of sleep. But uh, she's, she's our new children's ministry director, and uh, we, are, we are delighted and, and blessed to have her. So um, just, just wanted to make sure. I don't know. I know who she is, but I know who everybody is, and I find and I think everybody else knows who everybody is, but they don't. So um, just to let you know that. So we've been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah uh, since January. Hard to believe. Uh, and um, Marty told me a couple of weeks ago that uh, when I chose Ezra and Nehemiah, she thought, well, you know, what's up? Why, why are you doing that? Um, and uh, I think looking back over it now, it's, even though it's pretty obscure and there have been some really difficult passages, uh, it's been pretty applicable to uh, a handful of the issues we've faced, just a few of them in the last uh, few weeks and months. So uh, we're going to continue that today. Remember, Nehemiah had an economic crisis the last two weeks that he had to deal with, and then uh, today he's back. The, the familiar, the usual suspects that we've talked about before are uh, trying to get him to stop the work that he's doing of rebuilding the wall around uh, Jerusalem. And so that's going to pick up again uh, today. But before I read uh, Nehemiah 6, let me pray and um, uh, then we'll read God's word. Father, we come to you today thanking you that um, uh, dark valleys uh, uh, and uh, are uh, not new to you, and that uh, you walk through those with us. Uh, you protect us and guide us. Lord, I pray, too, that you would help us uh, in the midst of the dark valley to have a clear vision of you and a clear vision of your protection and care for us. Lord, we're going we're to talk today about fear and I pray today what you would help us in that is not to eliminate all fear from us, but to help us order our fears, to put them in, in, in the order uh, that you uh, see fit. And so would you do that today as we look at what uh, Nehemiah's and your enemies tried to do to make him afraid? We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Nehemiah 6 Verses 1 through 14, uh, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Now, when uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshev the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakifiram in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall, which is a lie. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. 
For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophets, prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. I've heard from many of you over the years that uh, you don't want to hear the words of the scriptures. Uh, do not be afraid. Fear not. Don't tell me that. Because what I am facing... What I'm experiencing is worthy of fear, right? We hear that command. Uh, It's repeated in the New Testament. I forget how many times, but over and over and over again, God tells his people not to be afraid. Um, And uh, there's plenty of times in the Old Testament as well. Fear not. And yet uh, fear is, uh, well... For many of us, fear is like a friend. It's familiar. Just as these enemies were familiar, the usual suspects, we've run into them before, Sanballat and Geshem and, and Tobiah, they've shown up before, right? They're, they're not, there's nothing new there with them. Uh, but we kind of get used to our fears, right? We kind of manage them, think about them, understand them, even even kind of uh, uh, project those fears upon other people. We live in an anxious age. Even before the pandemic, even before the social unrest in our country, anxiety was rampant among us. Right? One of the ways we know, one of the ways that that shows up for many of us is our inability to sleep at night. Um, I always can tell when I'm anxious or stressed. Uh, I, I almost never have a problem going to sleep at night. I, I, you know, if I get still and quiet after nine o'clock as an old man, uh, I'll fall asleep. But I usually wake up around three o'clock. Wide awake. Uh, because I'm worried. I'm afraid. I'm concerned. Um, Nehemiah understands the debilitating effect that anxiety and fear has upon the people of God to keep them from doing the work that God has called them to do. Uh, And these enemies use intimidation and lies uh, to make him afraid to try to stop the work that he is doing. But what we're going to see this morning is, is that Nehemiah orders his fears in a way that is uh, uh, God honoring. And when he is confronted with fears, 
he turns to the one who can deliver him. I think he remembers this text from Psalm 127. This is a Psalm of Solomon, actually. So I'm sure Nehemiah was probably very familiar with this, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, which is what he's doing, building a, a city wall, right? The watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Right. So as we as we think about the issue of fear, it's important for us to to, to come to grips with that. The, the 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 truth of the matter is, the people of God should never find themselves in a position where fear is not a part of their lives at all, because there are some things that we should fear. Nehemiah evidences that uh, in the way in which uh, he uh, uh, confronts the lies and the intimidation of his enemies. Um, but the fact is, there are ways to confront our fears uh, that God has given to us, uh, that he lays on us to help us. I've used this story before. When my boys were little, about four and five, we were out walking one day, and we were confronted by some very large, a pack of very large, unrestrained dogs, and they were coming at us. I, they, they were, they were big enough and scary enough that I don't, I'm usually largely unaware of things. Uh, I'm not afraid of a lot in the world because I'm, I'm largely unaware. <laughs> I'm not paying attention. <laughs> so, uh, things that normal people see and are afraid of, I typically miss. I'm like, what, what was that? Why are you afraid? So, so, but these dogs scared me. I saw them. And so my two boys were with me. And uh, what was interesting was their reaction. My oldest son sees the dogs and he immediately moves behind me because he puts me between him and the dogs. That's how he's going to deal with his fear. My younger son uh, runs across the street into another yard and picks up a stick. That's how he deals with his fear. It's interesting. Now, you know, the older one who mitigated the risk is an insurance. <laughs> and the younger one who picked up the stick is a soldier. So they, they, they both were afraid. They both were confronted with something fearful. And that was how they managed it. That was how they reacted to the threat. That's how they reacted uh, uh, to uh, to the thing that that was threatening them, right? So the so the fact is, as we as we look at this, you know, the the message of the gospel, the word that God has to us is that the people of God should never be afraid. That there's nothing in the world to be afraid of. In fact, since since our first parents were were cast out of the Garden of Eden as a result of their rebellion. Uh, can you only imagine the, how their eyes were open, not just to the fact that they were spiritually dead, not just to the fact that suddenly they were alienated from each other and from God, but the, the, they were alienated from their environment. What had been a, a place of home, a place of joy, a place of provision, a place of fruitful labor now becomes a place that is hard and difficult and challenging with all sorts of threats and difficulties that would make just existing a challenge. So there's plenty in the sinful, broken world uh, to be afraid of and to uh, to cause us uh, some anxiety, right? 
So let's look at Isaiah 6 then and help us to kind of confront a little bit and learn a little bit from Nehemiah about how it is he addressed his fear. So in the, in, in the, in the first nine verses, right, what we see is, is that the, the, his enemies see that the wall's going up, that it's essentially done. All he's got to do is hang the gates. And, uh, as he does that, they're like, oh no, we got to do something about this because the building of the wall would mean that these other enemies, these other, uh, uh, entities that are around the people of God, it would, it, once the wall's built, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to attack the people of God. So they don't want that to happen. And so they are trying to do everything they can to stop the construction on the wall. And so what they do is they say to uh, Nehemiah, they want to meet with him. They want to have a summit, right? Just imagine that, you know, you approach the leader of another country with the whole purpose of saying, we need to have a summit. We need to have a meeting. We need to work out some things diplomatically. And the whole purpose of that is to kill the people who come to the summit. That's exactly what's happening here. Nehemiah is no dummy. He understands who these guys are and he knows what their purpose is. And so he says, you know, I'm busy doing the work that God's called me to do. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Uh, and they keep after him, keep after him five times. They want him uh, uh, to come and and their strategy is the same. It's the same as the strategy that many of our enemies wage against us. And that is the strategy of lying. We know that you're building that wall because you're planning to make a rebellion against uh, the emperor and that you are setting yourself up as a king. And in fact, there are prophets walking around in Jerusalem right now saying that there's going to be a king in Judah. Those prophets are saying they are prophesying about a king that's going to be in Judah, but it's not Nehemiah. It's Jesus that they're prophesying about. And so they take those things, they take those words, they, they bend them, they stretch them so that this lie then is meant to intimidate. This lie is meant to scare. This lie is meant to, as Nehemiah says so poetically, to drop, put his hands down at his side and be stuck and no longer work, right? So it's the usual suspects, when, and that's true for us too, you know, we... Uh, I'm sure that you have anxieties and fears. You have enemies that come at you the same way they've been coming at you for 10, 15, 20, 30 years to scare you, to intimidate you, to to discourage you. And probably with a lot of the same lies uh, to make you think you're you're not worth anything or you have no nothing to provide or that God doesn't love you or you're unforgivable, right? So if you can just, and so these, these strategies to, to, to get at us, make us want to, as we, as we pray today, to drop seeing the kingdom of God come in our lives and in our, uh, the world around us, because if we're afraid, the work stops. We get paralyzed. We get stuck, right? So Nehemiah knows their strategies, and he knows who they are. And what he says is they wanted to frighten me. Because if, if, if we can frighten them, the, their, they will, their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. So he, he knows what's coming at him. He's familiar with his strategies. He's familiar with his enemies. And so what does he do? He doesn't quit. He doesn't react in anger. He says simply, God, strengthen my hands. So he turns in his fear. 
He turns in the intimidation. He turns when he's struck with the lies and he turns to God and he says, God, help me. God, strengthen me. Right. But in verses 10 through 14, it gets even worse because now the enemies are not the usual suspects that are outside there that have been coming at him now for years. But they're actually people within his own community, prophets who have been hired by his enemies to tell him lies and to discredit him. Because this weird story of this prophet coming to him who's confined to his house saying, listen, they're coming to kill you. We need to go run to the temple. And by going to the temple, we can have some sort of sanctuary space there where they won't kill you in, in the temple uh, is not is, is is an attempt to get Nehemiah to be afraid. And by running to the temple, what would that do? That would cause the, him to lose uh, um, credibility, right? It says that he, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way that is running to the temple and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. In other words, what that that the that ploy is to get him to act on his fear. And so in front of the people so that they would see, you know, all this talk about God being with them and building the wall and all that really was a lie and that Nehemiah uh, doesn't really believe what he says. So when the pressure came on, he ran and hid. So it's a deeply devious and insidious ploy uh, now that the enemies are using against him to get, to get him to do that, right? They wanted to frighten us. They wanted to make us afraid, right? Now, it's important for us to understand that, right? So so that a big ploy of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, is to make us afraid. Uh, and, and, and fear is a natural, normal part of being a finite human being. So what is it then? How do you manage it? What do you do with it? How do you, you know, is it, is it just simply praying more? Is it reading more of the Bible? Is it, is it, uh, what, what is it? Is it, you know, going to God and saying, zap me with the anti-fear weapon that you get there? What is it that I need to do to be able to do this? Well, it's important for us to understand the nature of fear to come at, as, as Nehemiah does here, to apply the goodness and the grace of God to that. To help us understand that. So the, the first thing that we, we should under, understand about this is um, you should fear God. Not in some kind of slavish way. Not in some sort of way that makes you not turn to him, not confess your sins to him. But we should reverence God. And if you want to deal with your fears of coronavirus or you want to deal with your fears of of, of, as we've already sung, the fear of having nothing, the fear of losing everything, the, the fear of being left alone, the fear of death, the fear of, of uh, uh, violence, any of those things. If you want to confront those fears, the way to do that is to fear God. The way to do that is to reverence God. If, if God is the, is the central part of our, uh, uh, our understanding of the world, if we look at him and we see him as the center, if we see him as the sovereign one, if we see him as the awesome one, if we see him as the all-powerful one, and we, 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 we meditate upon that, we focus our hearts and attention upon that, then these other things that come against us that are our enemies and that could and would do us harm are now put in their place. So when I look and I see that, that God is for me, that he loves me, 
that he is my father, that Jesus has demonstrated his love by dying and rising again for me, by living my life. But when I, when I understand that and I see he is worthy of my worship, he is worthy of my attention, then it puts these other things um, uh, in, into perspective, right? But there are things and there are times that cut, where things come to us and we should, we should react with some fear, right? Uh, my, uh, my grandson, uh, is, uh, he is, he's not walking, he's running, right? So, uh, part of that is because he's very, uh, 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 disproportionately large with the head and upper body. And so he's always leaning forward and his feet are always trying to catch up with the momentum of his, his, his upper body. So he's running all the time. Well, he'll run right out in the street. Right. I, I should not let him do that. I'm afraid of what will happen to him in, in the street. God, God gives us that kind of fear to make us react to, to do something about that. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. You're not sinning if you grab a kid's hand to keep them from running out in front of a car. Right. There's, 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 there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Next slide, Scott. So those kinds of fears, um, uh, are appropriate. And, and there's nothing wrong with coming at the fact that there are things in our world that we should take seriously and that, uh, that God brings into our worlds that, that, that we shouldn't do- let allow to dominate our hearts and our minds, dominate our waking and thinking and our sleeping, but are nevertheless things that must be confronted and must be dealt with, right? Um, I've heard from a number of people say to me, uh, because they were very afraid of the, of COVID-19 when it first really launched here in America in, in February and March. And now here it is July and they're tired of it. <laughs> and so rather than have a healthy respect and understanding for it, I've, I've heard a number of you even say this to me. And so, Forgive me for calling you out from the pulpit, but, uh, well, if I hadn't gotten it by now, I'm not going to get it. I, I, I want you to understand that's dumb. <laughs> okay. That is not, that is not a biblical God honoring way to deal with your fear. Okay. If I hadn't gotten it by now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get it. Uh, because, uh, you might. You know, uh, uh, you might get it, uh, uh, you might not get it in July, you might get it in October. One of the things I heard this week that I think makes sense to me is that, you know, praise the Lord in some ways, if you can say that, that many uh, epidemiologists think this thing's going to be over by February one way or the other. Either enough of us will have gotten it. Or there'll be some kind of shot to take for it, right? But the fact is it's real and it can make you sick. It could kill you, right? So it's it, sometimes I think what we, we do with that, we think, well, what the gospel means to me, what, what, what the, the scriptures mean to me is because I belong to Jesus wearing a mask seems like I'm afraid. Well, in, in Nehemiah's case, what, what he would have done here is, is, 
if you want to apply that as what he would have done is he would have said, you know what? God protects me. He's for me. I'm going to go to the meeting. <laughs> I know these guys want to kill me, but I'm going to go anyway. They're not going to kill me because I got this, you know, my Holy Ghost force field around me that's going to keep them from killing me. Right. No, he knows what they're going to do. He's trusting God, and he decides, I'm not going to go to that meeting because they're going to kill me if I go to that meeting, right? So the fact is, as you, as you think about this, one of the ways that we deal with this is to understand in the midst of our fear, in the midst of these things that we don't understand is God has given us these things, and we, we, we rest in, uh, it, it, it's not, it's not, you're not giving way to fear if you wear a mask, Right? In fact, it may be a bold action, a loving action to do that, as painful and as difficult and as unpleasant as it is. So there's plenty out there to make us afraid. But coronavirus, as fearful as it is, is not bigger than God. It's not bigger than Jesus. And it's not bigger than the cross. Those things have to loom most biggest and most foremost in my mind. But one of the one of the things that I think that one of the ways that I think fear stunts us even more than fear, these external things that would come at us is a way that keeps us a fear that keeps us from believing that God is good. Because I think one of the reasons why fear dominates us so often is not because we don't believe in that there's a God and not because we don't believe that God has some sort of power, maybe even awesome power, but we don't believe that he loves us and we don't believe that he's good. And so because we think that, we look at the opportunities that the world places around us to love, to make ourselves vulnerable in the service of the kingdom of God. And because we don't believe God loves us and is good we don't do it. I'll, tell, I'll give you a terrible example from my life. Uh, we, uh, we lost a child, so I know what that feels like. I've thought a lot about that lately. I've thought a lot about how my dad reacted to that when that happened to us. My dad retired uh, when he found out Marty was pregnant because he wanted to be ready and able to play with his grandchildren. And... Uh, a couple of months after uh, the funeral, he uh, he went back to work. And I went to him, you know, the typical son thinking, aha, you didn't plan financially, did you? You need the money. And he said, no, we don't need the money. But when my grandson died, I realized I'm losing my mind and I got to do something because it was so overwhelming to him. So there are moments where I look at my grandson And I can't help but love him. But I think, what would I do if something happened to him? Now, I know that's dark. And I know that's, but I do. I look at him and I think, could I, I I don't know that I could make it. Now, now there's nothing wrong in a sense of thinking that. But the next thing that pops into my mind is wrong. And that is, don't and trust yourself. Don't love him. Don't make yourself vulnerable to him because what are you going to do 
if something happens to him. You won't be able to make it. Right? So I think what happens to us weirdly, and I am, I am no counselor, I am, I am no psychologist, but I think I've, I've observed enough human behavior to know that when traumatic things happen to us, when terrible things come our way, they, they imprint themselves on us in a way that make us say, that is never going to happen to me again. That was so terrible, and I am so afraid of that happening to me ever again. I won't make myself vulnerable to the enemy that might hurt me, deprive me, right? So what do you do in that moment? Well, I think the the root of that sin is I am no longer reverencing God. I am no longer worshiping Jesus. I'm actually giving over the the power of my life. I'm actually giving over this huge amount of power to determine how I live and how I love to this other thing, this weird fear that I think that God's not good and that God won't care for me and God won't bless me. He won't provide for me. He won't provide for my grandson. And so because I believe that it keeps me from loving. As we said today in the, in the Heidelberg Catechism, I don't know if you, I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't, we don't start by saying, Jesus didn't want us to pray, God, even though that's true, He wants us to come with the understanding that the God that we are reverencing and that we are in awe of is our Father who loves us and is for us. So that when I go to Him, And I can say to him, you're awesome, hallowed be your name, I want your kingdom to come, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You will be prevented from experiencing the coming of the kingdom of God in your life and in the people around you. You will be hindered from experiencing the fullness of what Jesus died to give you if we allow the brokenness and the fallenness and the fear that is in our world to keep us from believing that our God not only reigns, but he reigns in love. That our God not only is in control, but he is in control as a father loving and bringing into the lives of his children what is good for them, what is best for them. And so I think that's why Nehemiah keeps turning in the midst of this challenge and this fear to this God, not because he wants him to be just sovereignly in control, but he knows that God loves him, that he's for him. That's, that's one of the reasons why we have uh, we wanted the church to go through, as we've gone through this uh, summer, our series on lament uh, on Wednesday nights. Because the point of that is, yes, the, 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 the lamenter looks at the world and is afraid, looks at the world and is sad, looks at the world and his own life and is broken. And he says, why? Why? Answer me. Tell me what's going on. But the lament always ends up Remembering the goodness of God, the love of God, and putting ourselves in a posture of trust. Knowing that his goodness, his grace, his mercy 
is the is what sustains us in the midst of what is fearful. And so as we as we as we approach this as we as we think about this today what 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 Nehemiah teaches us what the gospel teaches us is listen you know be afraid but don't give way to fear don't be undone by it act appropriately but understand in the middle of things that maybe you can't understand in the middle of things that would that seem like they would undo you God is good And though it may be difficult for us to see it in the moment, time will tell, and eternity certainly will tell, will resound with the joy of seeing that our faith, given to us by a loving Father, our trust in a God who is for us, will be shown to be true and good, and powerful, and greater than any of the things, any of the people, any of the lies that seem to be so fearful to us. Pray with me. Lord, we, um, we come to you. You know that we are dust, uh, but you love this dust. You know that we are weak and often prone to fears. Forgive us, give us the energy, uh, just remind us uh, to keep turning uh, in our hearts uh, and our love uh, to you. Lord, we, uh, we confess that we make other things so big and so fearful, we forget the reverence and the awe that there is in a God who loves us, a God who forgives sin, a God who bleeds on behalf of his people. So for, forgive us for that, but also, Lord, turn us by your spirit as you turned your servant Nehemiah to you when confronted with fearful enemies. Would you do that for us? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Oh, would you join me now?